Um, okay. So, we're continuing our march through the parables. And uh, tonight, Matthew 25. And uh, this is kind of an interesting one. It's the parable about the ten virgins. Okay, and... Um, you know, this is one of those passages which I really haven't give much, given much thought about. And... I think historically, or when I would come across this, I would just like, what's that all about? I mean, you know, what's up with the ten virgins and the bridegroom and this wedding party? And I think ultimately I would just kind of like pass through this parable and not even like think about it. Okay, it's usually those kind of passages which we actually really need to to look at. Okay, and uh, because they probably say something to us that. We need to look at. So, just a note about how do you read your Bible? Okay, before this, do you just go to your Bible and pick out the familiar passages or the passages that you think you understand? Um, because there's something about the Bible that's different than any other book. Okay, because the Bible is God's Word. It's holy. It's inspired. It's God-written. It's inerrant, meaning that in all of its part, it's without error because it's God's truth. He's given it to us. It's inspired by Him. It's been given by all the prophets, passed down through generation. Okay, And uh, it's trustworthy. And so, because it is the Bible and because it is God's Word and because it is authoritative, we should just read it because it is the Bible. So we should actually read all of it. And not pick and choose. In fact, I wanted to read this quote from Tim Keller. I'm sorry I'm quoting Tim Keller a lot. Uh, but he's, he's uh, a good pastor. You should listen to him. Uh, but he says this. He says, um, he says, it's always a danger to go to the relevant parts of the Scripture. And then he says this, are you so wise to think that you know what are the relevant parts of the Scripture? That's why you need to read the Bible systematically instead of going after those parts which you think relate to you. How do you know what relates to you unless you read the whole thing? And then he says this, the Bible is wiser than you than you are, so filter your life through its wisdom rather than filtering it through yours. Okay? Let me repeat that. The Bible is wiser than you are. It's God's Word. Okay? So, filter your life through its wisdom rather than filtering it through yours. Okay, so we're going to look at this passage and um, think about what it has to teach us. So, hear God's Word, Matthew 25, 1-13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, 
the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. And afterward, the, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This ends the reading of God's holy word. Okay, the context of this passage is the second coming of Jesus. Okay, the Lord had been talking to His disciples. This is the week before, or actually just a few days before He goes to the cross. And uh, He's already starting to tell them about His second coming. And I'm not sure if you've been around uh, many people who like to talk about end times. I don't know exactly what your church background is, but I grew up listening to this man on the radio. Okay, and some of you may have had this experience as well. But there's a radio station called Family Radio, and my mother would always listen to this radio station, and me being the child, I would also listen to this radio station. And there was a man that would come on there, Harold Camping. He's still alive. Okay, he's about 87 years old now. Hello, listener. And uh, <laughs> anyway, Harold Camping, in some aspects, okay, he's right on. But in lots and lots of aspects, and as he gets older, he's just kind of whacked out. Okay, don't listen to him. Okay, he's actually heretical. He was an engineer. He was a civil engineer. Okay, I can relate to that. And then he started getting into the Bible. And uh, he began to be very interested in the numbers of the Bible and all the dates of the Bible. And basically, his whole life has been one of trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back. Okay, even though in this passage right before here, it says, you can't know. It says in, in uh, chapter 24, clearly, it says this, um, uh, where is it? Uh, um, it's in chapter 24. Jesus said, uh, he said, and Jesus answered, see that no one leads you, uh, astray. Anyway, he talks about how no one knows, not even the Son knows, nor the angel knows, only the Father knows. Okay, and even at the end of this passage, he says, stop trying to predict when the end will come. He says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Okay, but this man has spent his entire life basically trying to predict when Jesus is going to come back. And back in the 90s, he wrote a book, 1994, question mark. It was about this big. I remember looking at the book. My mom had the book. And uh, uh, 1994 came and went, people, and Jesus did not come back. I see that hand. It's going to have to wait till afterwards. Okay. What's that? Yeah, now the next prediction is May of 2011. Okay? So, get ready. Just about the time that your finals are coming up, Jesus is going to come back. Okay? That's what he's saying. And so, some of you, some of you are not going to study your exams because I just said that. Okay? You're going to just take off. Um, it's going to be tennis shoes on the ground, people in the sky. Okay. Um, so, one of the things I want to just point out here in the beginning of this is, note to self, don't try to predict when Jesus is coming because the passage says that 
The angels in heaven, nor the Son knows. Only the Father knows. Um, but if you look, if you Google like second coming of Jesus, you would be surprised what you see. Okay, if you just go and Google second coming of Jesus, if you got an iPhone, don't do that or a smartphone right now. But um, there's been lots of people through the ages who've tried to predict when Jesus is going to come back. Okay, and there was a guy back in eight in the 1840s, a guy by the name of William Miller from New York, and uh, he began teaching and spreading his views that Jesus was going to come back sometime around 1843 to 1844. And he had a whole sect, basically a whole denomination called the Millerites uh, that were created because he um, used mass publication and put his views out there and went all over the place talking about that. Um, March 21st, 1843 to March 21, 1844. He thought that was when it was going to come and then it didn't come, and then there was a period of what they called the Great Disappointment. It's kind of like the Orioles, okay? Um, and then there's been many others. Hal Lindsey, if you guys know about Hal Lindsey, he's still on TV. He wrote a famous book back in, I guess, the late 70s called The Late Great Planet Earth. Okay, and basically he predicted Jesus was going to come maybe in 1984, I think. Maybe that was the time period. I see that head shaking right there. Um, Basically, again, he tries to look at the signs of the times. He tries to read his Bible, but he also tries to analyze like what's going on politically. Is that the Antichrist over there? Is it Osama bin Laden? Is it you know? Was it um, you know? Who is it? You know? Uh, is it Bill Clinton? Is it is it Ronald Reagan? I mean, like people just have all these bizarre ideas, and uh, they try to come up with these these time frames, um, and so. Basically, um, Matthew 24:36. that's the verse, people. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And again, at the end of this passage, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. We don't know when He's coming, but here's what we do know. Jesus is coming. And that we are in the last stage of biblical revelation, biblical redemptive history. Okay, we've had Jesus' first coming. We've had His life, His perfect life. We've had His death. We've had His resurrection. We've had His ascension. Okay, so if you think about that, we are in this period, the the next major event that's going to happen. We're in the end times. We don't know how long that end time period is going to be. It could be another couple thousand years. We just don't know. But we are in that last time and it says that we need to be ready. And really what this passage is all about with the ten virgins going out with their oil lamps is to be ready. The question is, are we ready? And what's it mean to be ready? Okay, so basically I want to go through this passage, but let me just explain a little bit. What's this all about with all these ten virgins meeting the bridegroom? What's going on? Well, they're talking about the customary Jewish wedding at the time. And basically, it was customary for the bridegroom, all the guys, to kind of be at their house, at the, at the groom's house. And uh, at night, for them to kind of walk through the village, walk through the town, over to the bride's house, where all the bridesmaids and everyone would be. And then they would have the wedding ceremony there, and then they would all go back for the celebration to the, to the groom's house. So this is kind of the basic way that the wedding ceremony would work. And so Jesus is taking that analogy there, and he's talking about it not just as a wedding, 
but about Himself. Because we know the big picture of the Bible, right? That God all along has talked about Israel, His people, being His bride. And He's talking about Himself being the groom. That's what Ephesians 5 talks about. You've heard it at wedding, um, you know, during wedding homilies, you know, that Jesus is the groom, you know, and the church is the bride of Christ. And so, this is what the Lord is doing right here. And so, uh, He's explaining this parable, uh, and it has, you know, it has a deeper meaning being, are we ready for Him? <laughs> are we ready for the ultimate groom that's going to be coming for us? And so, What's it mean? What's it mean to be wise? Uh, it talks about the five five of these gals, these virgins were wise, and five were foolish. And so let's look at what it means to be wise. And the first thing to be wise in terms of being ready is it means you have to have the gospel. It means you need to be wise and to be ready for Jesus means that you need to know the Gospel. Let me unpack that a little bit. Um, in the passage, what you see here, the big difference is, is the wise virgins had the extra oil. They had, a can of, they had their lamp with oil, but they also had an extra flask of oil. The foolish virgins only had their lamp with oil. And the oil ran out. Okay, now in the Scriptures, um, it's often said that oil is a sign for God's anointing grace. And if you think about the Old Testament, they would use oil to anoint the kings. King David was anointed with oil. It's a sign and it's a seal of God's grace, His special grace for a special task for people. Uh, the prophets used oil when they anointed someone. So the oil here in this passage is really a picture of God's grace. It's a picture of the Gospel for us. Those who had that oil we're able to meet their Savior. We're able to meet the groom. Um, and those that did not have that oil were locked out of the party. And so, just like other parables that we've looked at, there's a, there's a big separation here. <laughs> it talks about those who are in and those who are out. Those who are in the party, those who make it to the feast, and those who get shut outside. The parables are tough. They don't, they don't mix anything around. We said that parables have this ability to kind of enter us into the story and then all of a sudden they turn on us. And so the real question is like, who are you? Do you have the gospel? Are you a wise virgin, so to speak? Do you have Jesus? And really, that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is all about having Jesus. Having the oil of God's grace, so to speak. Knowing Christ. Um, and these, these five, the wise ones, had, had that oil. Um, and so, what's that mean for us? What's it really mean to understand the Gospel? Uh, it, it means that, that, that Jesus is the bridegroom who washes us and who supplies us. In Ephesians 5, it talks about how um, the groom will wash us with the Word. And we know that in the Gospel, what happens is, is we, come as the, we come as the bride that, that's dirty. The bride that's full of sin. The bride that has no resources in and of themselves to make themselves worthy for the groom. 
that we're sinners. Okay? This is our place. This is who we are. That uh, every bride, in terms of this spiritual aspect here, is a sinner. That we are sinners. That we have no hope of ourselves. We can't orchestrate our own flame. We can't work up our own oil. We need somebody else's. And that's what the Gospel is. It's Jesus' love and grace and His righteousness for us, for sinners. And so, Jesus lived the, the perfect life that we were supposed to live and we couldn't live. He kept the law perfectly and He died the death that we deserved. He was a substitute for us. That's the Gospel. The Gospel is, I'm a bigger sinner than I can understand and Jesus loved me more than I can imagine. That's the Gospel. And that's the hope that we have. That's what the five wise virgins understood. They understood that they had their oil. They had they had that, and they were able to go and and to meet uh, their groom. Second thing is this: okay, when you have the oil of the gospel, you also have an eternal perspective. Okay, and do you have an eternal perspective, or do you just see this life as all there is? You know, we live our 70 or 80 years, maybe 90 if we're really healthy. And, uh, and we die and that's it. I mean, a lot of people have that perspective. It's a secular perspective. It just says, you know, we're, we're just here for now, so we might as well live and party and have as much fun as we can and get as many toys as we can and, um, because this is all there is. You know, we, there's no spiritual. It's just what we see experienced. The Bible is talking about a totally other realm. It's saying, no, that there is a spiritual world. That, that uh, this world is fallen, but God is going to restore this world and make it new. That history is not secular, you know? That it just goes round and round and round, but it's purposeful. It has a direct end. That it began... With God saying, "He, you know, let there be light." And He creates everything, creates the world, creates the man and the woman, and everything that we have. And He says to the man and woman, "Be fruitful, multiply, go, and uh, you know, inhabit the earth, glorify Me, and everything." And we're all part of that family. But the fall happened, sin happened, but God didn't leave us there. He is coming for us, and He redeems us, and so. An eternal perspective means you have God's story as your story. You've got God's story as your story. It's not the world's story. It's not just like we live a few years and then we die and that's it, so we might as well have as much fun as we can. The eternal perspective means that we have windows in our world, that there's a supernatural entering into our world. It's not just what we see. It's not just time, matter, and chance. It's not just molecular biology. It's not just, it's not just that. It's more than that. It's God. It's the spirit and the physical. Okay? And God's going to remake and renew the physical. Uh, and He's going to rid this place of, of sin. And so, having an eternal perspective, that means also that we're, we're married to Jesus. Okay? That we don't think about life just by ourselves. That if, you're, if you know the gospel, if you have the oil, uh, in your flask, that means that you are engaged to your Savior and you're married to your Savior. And so think about this. I mean, um, for an engaged couple, they, you know, they know the date. They're making the arrangements. They're getting the dress and the tuxedos and the 
you know, they're getting their bridesmaids all together and the groom's groom is getting all his groomsmen together and they're getting the invitations out and the flowers and all that kind of stuff and they're getting the chapel and the, um, you guys know, and uh, they're getting, you know, the food for the rehearsal dinner and the reception and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they're making plans and uh, they can't wait to be together. They can't wait to be face to face. And so, this is a great picture, this picture of marriage that Jesus gives us, because that's, He wants us to be thinking along those lines that we've, we, we got a big marriage ceremony coming up to meet our Savior face to face. Right now it's veiled. Right now we're by faith, but one day it's going to be face to face. Are you prepared for that? Are you ready for that? Are you ready to walk down the aisle with Jesus and go to the feast? And so, that's what it means to have an eternal perspective. Um, and so, uh, you know, when you have that eternal perspective and you know that this world is not all there is and you know that you're married to Jesus and He loves you, your whole life can change. Your whole perspective of even what you're going to do with your life. You can take a job that doesn't pay well just because you like it and God, you feel like God is calling you to that. Okay? You can say no to the world's ideas about what's successful and what's not. Um, you could even go into missions. And uh, I was reading about Jim Elliott uh, yesterday. And some of you probably know about Jim Elliott. He, he died back in 1956. He was a missionary. And uh, grew up, uh, went to Wheaton College and... Uh, him and four friends decided to be missionaries to South America in the Ecuadorian jungle. Okay, they went to Ecuador and they wanted to work with the Aka Indians. And Aka means savage. But they wanted to go into the jungle where the gospel's never been, where nobody knew anything about Jesus. This is like the passion that they had in their heart. That is crazy. That's what God can give people. He doesn't give that to everybody, but to these guys He did. And so they made all these kind of plans. They made these arrangements. They had one guy that flew a plane, a guy by the name of Nate Saint. And so they all go down to, to Ecuador and they plan this, this whole um, mission to these Aka Indians. And they set up this base camp and they have a runway and they begin to drop presents to this people group. They drop like machetes and food and all kinds of just nice things to try to make connection and friendship. And uh, it looked like it was going well. And then they had one day planned where they were going to launch out and try to meet those people. And before that day came, about ten from that party came and literally killed them with spears. And they found their bodies in the river. And uh, Jim Elliott and four of his friends all died. And you could say, man, that didn't... Man, that, that, was, that was not successful. But here's the amazing thing about what happened afterwards. His Elizabeth Elliot, okay, Jim's wife, has the grace and the eternal perspective to forgive the tribe that killed her husband to the point where she goes back to the tribe with their daughter, three years old Valerie, and they lived among the people for several years. Many of those same people that killed those guys became believers. The whole tribe was transformed. That's the kind of amazing eternal perspective life that God gives people. He does that by His Spirit. He does that when our 
flasks are filled with the spirit of his grace. After the, the murder, here's what she said. Here's what Elizabeth Elliot said. The Lord has closed our hearts to grief and hysteria and filled, filled in with his perfect peace. Only when you have perspective of eternity and God that this world is not all there is, that there is something greater. Can you say anything like that? That's the power of the gospel. Okay, so do you have that? Do you have a fear of death? Or do you have confidence that you are going to be with your Savior? No matter what happens, you're going to walk right into the gates of splendor and be with Jesus. Do you have that? Do you have that kind of confidence? If you don't, the Lord will give it to you. Just ask Him for it. Ask Him. Be bold. Believe in Him. Third thing is this. The Gospel, when we have that Gospel oil, um, it gives us undivided devotion. It gives us undivided devotion. Um, and we see it in this passage that the, the, the wise virgins, they're focused on the Lord. Okay, whereas the foolish virgins are just doing their thing. Okay, they forget about the oil. And verse seven it says, When when the bride or when the groom called them, then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But then the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers, buy for yourselves. And then while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So there's something going on here. There's a choice. There's a choice they make for the groom. Okay? They have an undivided devotion. They have their oil. Um, the foolish do not. Now, you might say that this is, this is sad. Here, are these poor foolish virgins didn't have any oil, and they asked for oil. Why couldn't they just give a little bit of oil? You know? I mean, why couldn't they love these foolish. Folks, well, there wasn't enough time and there wasn't enough oil. And uh, it was too late. And, but they had an undivided devotion to the Lord. They weren't going to let anything delay them from going to the wedding. Um, and so, on the wedding day, I don't know if you guys had any issues on your wedding day, but I remember one of my neighbors, he was the organist for my sister's wedding, and uh, I was like six years old. And he got into an accident on the way to the church. Okay, so the organist doesn't show up. What do you do? Do you have just people hum, like, here comes the bride? Okay, I don't know what you do. They had, they called somebody out of the crowd who, like, just went up and, like, maybe knew a few chords on the organ and played something. Okay, but that's what they had to do. Okay, they, they couldn't, they just had to keep going with it. On your wedding day, you know, some things just got to go. If you, ladies, if you were there, you're in the limo, you're dressed up, you got your your gown on, and everything is in its right place. And say if the limo driver is driving to the church and sees a guy uh, with a flat tire on the road, okay, you think he's going to stop and like say, hey, you know what, this guy's got a flat tire. I think we'll stop and help him. Would you get out there and help help that poor guy? Maybe jack the car up a little bit. No, you're going to the wedding, okay? You have an important date, okay? Your groom is going to be there. 
Undivided devotion to Jesus. Okay, that's what we see. They are going for it and nothing is going to stop them. And so, I want to ask you this. Do you have that kind of undivided devotion? Do you make a priority to worship the Lord? Do you make Sunday, do you make church a priority? Okay, not just REF, but do you say, you know what, RUF's for a few years while I'm in college or whatever college ministry you're involved with, but the church is for life. Are you committed to God's bride, the church? Are you committed to worship? Are you committed to, to going and hearing God's Word and, and praising the Lord? That's part of what it means to have that undivided attention, to have that eternal perspective that you're going to be with your Lord. And then the last thing is this. It means getting to know Him. Okay, it means getting to know him. Not all of these folks knew him, um, and uh, you know one of the things about parables we've talked about is there's always an audience Jesus is going at. A lot of times it's the Pharisees. Okay, but this time back a chapter or so before that, he's talking to the disciples. Okay, he's specifically talking to the disciples about when he's going to return, and so this is interesting. In the midst of talking about the disciples. He's talking about the foolish virgins, virgins, and the wise virgins. Okay, he's making a separation within the disciples that some of you guys got it, and some of you guys don't. Some of you guys are in this, and some of you guys aren't. And this is very interesting. Jesus always talked like this, and it stabs you in the heart because he says in the church, in his body, there's always wheat and tares. That in the visible church, in in every congregation of believers, guess what? There's true believers and there's other believers that, that aren't really in it. That's scary. Okay, In Israel, back in the Old Testament, you had all of Israel together. Some of them were true Israel. They had circumcised hearts. Some of them weren't. And so, Jesus is making a statement here and He's saying with His disciples, with these, this crowd of people that were following Him, that maybe not all of you are really in it. Okay? Maybe not all of you truly know the Lord. And uh, I was reading Spurgeon. Do you guys know who Charles Spurgeon is? The Prince of Preachers? He was a Baptist preacher back in the 1800s. You should pick up a Spurgeon sermon and read it. You'll be impressed. But anyway, he he makes this point that, um, that, you know, in the church today, he said, boy, if there's only 50% that are actually saved, that's pretty sad. Because there's 10, ten virgins, five are saved and five aren't. And he talks about, boy, that would be sad if that's the, the case in the church. And so, the call of this passage is, again, to make sure you got the gospel. Make sure that you're wise virgin. Make sure you know Jesus. Make sure your flask is filled up with the oil of His grace. And... How do you know? Well, I mean, it's not just maybe you walked an aisle or you raised your hand, but it's truly knowing that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. I mean, anybody can sign a card. Anybody can raise your hand at, at a meeting. It might be true and it might be authentic. I don't, want to, I don't want to downplay those things. But it also might just be, hey, I got an insurance policy for Jesus. Okay, but, I, but I'm just going to live whatever kind of life I want to live. That's not the gospel. That's not what being a wise virgin getting ready for the feast is all about. That A wise virgin getting ready to, for the feast doesn't mean you're perfect. 
We're all sinners. But it means that you're, you have a life of repentance and faith. You're constantly looking back to Jesus. You're saying, you know what? I'm a big, nasty sinner. And I admit that. And Jesus, would you help me? And would you cleanse me? And would you make me new? That's what it means to know Jesus. That you have that kind of intimate relationship with Him. That you can't just be fake. You can't just put on a facade that, hey, I'm going to the feast and then just live whatever kind of life you want to live. And so, ultimately, it's a, it's a sobering passage because guess what? Those five virgins show up and they knock at the door. They knock at the door. They, they come. They, they went out to the store. They got their oil and they, they show up. And in verse 12, the bridegroom opens and says, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. That is harsh. That's harsh. That's what the Gospel is, though. It's, it's a cutting edge. Some are in, some believe, but not all do. And we know in other passages, Jesus says the same thing, like, get away from me, I never knew you. Even people that say, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that, we did, you know, prophesy in your name, we cast out demons, we healed people in your name, like, come on, we're in. And Jesus said, get away from me, I never knew you. That's one of the scariest passages in all of the Bible. But again, it means that to know Jesus is to know that you have the Holy Spirit He's with you that you repented and you saw that it's none of the stuff I did. It's not that I healed people or not that I cast out demons or not that I prophesied. It's that, Jesus, I'm nothing and I need you. I need your righteousness. That's how you get in. That's how you got the grace of the Gospel. Let me pray. Lord, thanks for this passage. Thank you that we can um, take a few moments and think about what it means to be uh, in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And Lord, how it's nothing about what we do. It's all about what Jesus does and the grace and the oil of the Gospel that He gives. So I pray that we would all know that and experience it. pray that You bless everyone here tonight. Bless their week. I know it's midterms and things are hard. So I pray that You would encourage them in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we're going to stand and sing as we close.